We have been studying the Apostle Paul's letter to the Galatians, which is in the New Testament. And we started that study last fall. Now we're in chapter 5. Um, I do podcast the sermons, by the way. Um, you can go to iTunes and look for Belmont and RUF, and you will find that if you want to see some of the, or hear some of the older messages. Uh, tonight we're going to talk about Galatians chapter 5 and the issue of freedom. Freedom. Now, freedom is a great buzzword, isn't it? Everybody loves to talk about freedom. But I, I think, you know, it's important when you find words in the Bible, it's important that you don't just import the way you understand the word and, and kind of fit that into the Bible. It's important to try to understand what does the Bible mean by the word it's using. And the way you figure that out is by the context. And one of the things, one of the words that I think is most often misunderstood is the idea of freedom. Like I say, it is a buzzword in our culture. Uh, the typical Westerner, when they think about freedom, they mean being free to do whatever they want, whenever they want, with whoever you want, with no authority ruling your life, no external authority. In some ways, it's what it means to be American, right? You know, no king, nobody can rule over us. And then we sing a song like my king is known by mercy, which kind of derives from Tolkien's Lord of the Rings. You know, I don't know if you realize that. And, um, you know, I, I've always been amazed at Tolkien's ability to make the idea of a king this beautiful picture. If you've seen the movies, more so even if you've read the book. Um, there is something about having a rightful king that really resonates with us. There is something about it. But the typical Western view is that the maximum autonomy, the better. The problem is we've been living out that story, that dream for a while, and all is not well with Western individualism. I don't think it's a coincidence that our pursuit of individual autonomy and self-definition, what you might call the cult of authenticity, that I get to define who I am, has led to a crisis of loneliness and alienation and the sense that we've lost our way. Everybody's trying to figure out who they are apart from anything else, apart from God. Nobody, no God gets to tell me what I'm for, how I'm to live. No church, no institution. My family does like in the West, we have this this myth that really dominates our culture, that you can only be yourself when you're free from all kinds of external compulsion. And so we look inside and try to figure out who we really are. But of course, that just leads to more and more anxiety, doesn't it? Because you're not really sure. Or we try to, you know, be who we are, be free to be what we want to do whenever we want. And we realize it's pretty hard to have any kind of significant relationships when you live that way. I've always loved this quote from Trent Reznor, Nine Inch Nails. Now he does more movie composing, I suppose, right? Um, this was actually about 15 years ago in Rolling Stone magazine. He said, I've always said, based on my own head, give people the benefit of the doubt. Give them credit to think for themselves. Nobody has the right to say, hey, I'm telling you what you can and cannot see because I know better than you. That's ridiculous. I feel, yeah, empower the individual. Then I turn in the news, and this quote is kind of chilling to read tonight. 
Then I turn on the news and you see some new idiot who kills kids in a church and my argument goes out the window. It's troubling. It is troubling. At one level, you want to say nobody can tell you what to do, but yet you know there are things that shouldn't be done. So how do you find a basis, even a, a moral basis, upon which to base your life? I've always loved uh, the way artists describe the problem. Chris Christopherson, you may not know him, um, but brilliant songwriter. He said, freedom's just another word for nothing left to lose. Well, the sociologists explain it this way. Um, this is a kind of a long quote, but I think it's really profound because there's no doubt a connection between the pursuit of maximum freedom and uh, autonomy and the way loneliness is the most pressing issue of our generation. Craig Gay, who teaches uh, multidisciplinary studies up at a, a school in Vancouver, said this, Western individuality has been and continues to be experienced as a great liberation. The modern individual has been freed from the repressive constraints of tradition, of caste and clan, and indeed even from the limitations of nature itself. Think about the birth control pill. We are free now to make something of ourselves if we can, to better our position in the social order and or simply to be left alone. And we are protected by laws and institutions which guarantee our rights over and against the larger society. Not surprisingly then, modern Western history has exhibited a steady procession of characters who embody the ideal of autonomous individuality. The conquistador, the entrepreneur, the citizen, the bourgeois gentleman, the romantic artist hero, the existential hero, and most recently, the sexual revolutionary. But there is mounting evidence to suggest that the otherwise optimistic stress upon liberated individuality may have ironic and unattended consequences. In this connection, sociologist Peter Berger, you taught at Boston University for years, has contended that a certain measure of alienation is simply the price we must pay for individual autonomy. For to the extent, listen to this, for to the extent that we are free from others, we are also alienated from them. I had a um, former student who got married and decided that she couldn't be tied down in the sense that she needed to be free to do whatever she wanted, whenever she wanted. If it meant staying out at Cafe Coco till four in the morning every night and not necessarily telling her husband where she was, that that's what she needed to do and he needed to respect that. As you can imagine, that marriage didn't last very long. To the degree that you're free and autonomous, to that degree, you are alienated. And this is the great tragedy and the great catch-22 of the time we live in that everything tells you that you need to be free to do what you want, when you want, and that happiness is found through the maximum amount of freedom. And at the same time, you have such a longing for community and connection, and we don't realize that the one is undermining the other. God didn't create us to live as autonomous individuals. That's at the heart of the Christian story. When God created Adam, when Adam had a perfect relationship with God, God said it's not good for man to be alone. And that was before sin and brokenness even entered into the world. It's still not good for men and women to be alone. 
The modern liberations have left us lost. Can we find a better way? Christianity has a lot to say about freedom. I wonder if you've ever heard a sermon on Christian freedom. Because the Bible actually talks about it quite a lot. G.K. Chesterton, great essayist influence on C.S. Lewis, said that most modern freedom is at root fear. It's not so much that we are too bold to endure rules. It's rather that we're too timid to endure responsibilities. Have you seen the effects of that on your community? Let's read this text and see what God has to say about freedom. We look at Galatians chapter 5, starting at verse 1. Only six verses tonight. This is God's word. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then, and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Mark my words. I, Paul, tell you that if you let yourselves be circumcised, Christ will be no value to you at all. Again, I declare to every man who lets himself be circumcised that he is obligated to obey the whole law. You who are trying to be justified by the law have been alienated from Christ. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, we eagerly await by faith the righteousness for which we hope. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. Let's pray briefly, and then we will dig into this text. Lord, we do thank you for your word. We pray that we could understand why Paul is so fired up about this issue of freedom. And we pray that this issue that stirs him up and stirs you up would stir us up. Send your spirit to that end, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I guess I want to start with the importance of Christian freedom. I mean, Paul puts it really starkly here, doesn't it? It is for freedom that Christ has set you free. You see what he's done there? He's basically made the word freedom the sum and substance of Christianity. You remember maybe two weeks ago, we talked about how the highest privilege, the highest good that we get in Christ is to be adopted as his children. The doctrine of adoption, Paul says earlier in this letter that Jesus came at the right time, born of a woman, born under law, so that he might redeem us, so that we might be sons of the living God. And the Spirit was sent so that we might feel like sons and be able to cry, Abba, Father. Now, he says, it is for freedom you have been set free. And he's not undermining what he said before. It's actually two ways of saying the same thing. The heart of what it means to be an adopted child of God is to be so secure in the love of God that can't be taken away because it's based upon what he did, not upon what you did, that your whole life, your whole being could be summarized in one word, freedom. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. <coughs> and yet, the next thing he says, stand firm, shows us that it's not easy. It's not easy. 
to hold on to this freedom. There are lots of attacks upon freedom. Freedom, though, is a shorthand way to describe what Jesus came to accomplish. I don't know, if we took a little survey, if we did a little poll, you know, give me one word to describe what Jesus did, I suspect there's not a person in this room that would have picked the word freedom to say this is what Christ did. People might have picked things like forgiveness or restored, or I don't know what words you would have used. I suspect hardly anybody would have said, Jesus came for freedom. As a matter of fact, my long experience around Christians and being in the Christian church is that people are a little nervous about the idea of freedom. That, that a lot of people think, well, you've got freedom, but then you also, hey, don't forget about holiness. And the more you talk about freedom, the more you seem to like not care about holiness. And we kind of pit these two things against each other. Well, Paul says, freedom is why Christ has set us free. And he says, stand firm and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Not only is it central to the teaching of Christianity, not only is it a shorthand way to say what Christianity is all about, freedom, it's also central to what it means to live as a Christian, because that's what he's saying here. He's saying it's for freedom that you are set free. Stand firm then. Live in freedom. So it's not only is it a sort of shorthand synonym for what it means to be a Christian, it's also what it means to live as a Christian. Living in Christian freedom is what we were set free for. And it's worth fighting for. Look down at verse 2. Mark my words. He's fired up about this. Do you see that? And down in verse 4, he, he makes this, this very stark contrast. You who are trying to be justified by the law have been alienated from Christ. You have fallen away from grace. Now, we'll talk about that in a minute because that's strong. And you may want to wonder, what does that mean? I better figure out what that means because I don't want to be in that category. But I want you to see he's really putting it in this kind of stark, contrasting way. But unfortunately, I don't think Christian freedom is talked about nearly as much as it should be. And honestly, I think there are a lot of Christian teachers who undermine what Paul is fighting for here. I really do. I, I think there are a lot of people that seem to think that Christian holiness and Christian freedom are in conflict. And that maybe you need to find some kind of balance between holiness and freedom. Because freedom, you're just going to go run around and do whatever you want. We know that Paul dealt with this problem. Actually, in Romans chapter 6, he anticipates a particular objection. When he's talking about how good God's grace is, he says, What shall we say then? Shall we sin all the more so that grace may increase? So Paul was used to people saying, Paul, if you talk about grace so much then people are just going to want out and live these free lives without any concern for living in holiness. Paul understood that, and still he has the audacity to say, it's for freedom that Christ set you free. I, I think the people that think that holiness and freedom are in conflict show that they don't really understand what holiness is about. I, I think they think that holiness looks like being so afraid of stepping out of line lest you bring shame upon God and the gospel. 
but they could care less whether their lives are marked by joy and peace. Let me say that again. The people that think that holiness and freedom are in conflict, I think have a very wrong-headed view of what holiness actually is. They think of holiness as being miserable and being afraid of stepping out of line and getting you know, God's you know, backside of his hand. They don't understand that if your life is not marked by joy and peace, it's not holiness at all. And that's actually, we're going to get into that in the rest of chapter 5, because there's this whole thing about the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is not miserable, pick yourself up by your bootstraps Christianity. It's not. But we have other weeks to talk about that. You know, in high school, I was thinking about this, about reading a little pamphlet. I became a Christian around ninth grade through Young Life. And um, I remember kind of around that time, young Christian, reading a little pamphlet by a Christian teacher who's still a preacher but will remain nameless about alcohol. Now, I'm not advocating that those of you that are underage should drink alcohol. But this, um, what was interesting about this is how it really messed me up for a long time. Because what this guy tried to argue first was, well, the Bible, the wine in the Bible wasn't really fermented. Now, you know, whatever. That, that's a really poor argument. Maybe you've heard it. Maybe we can talk about it, you know, our Wednesday 10 o'clock time if you want. But nobody would have thought that the people in Acts chapter 2 were drunk at 10 a.m. if the wine in the Bible wasn't fermented. And at the wedding feast of Cana, when Jesus turns water into wine, you remember, they come to him and say, man, this is good stuff. Like most people bring out the cheap wine after everybody's drunk and can't tell the difference, but you actually brought the good stuff, right? So th those arguments are weak. But here's the thing that really, here's the thing that was really bad is the very last. So we went through all this thing. Well, you know, in the Bible, the wine wasn't really fermented. It was just basically grape juice. I was like, yeah, but they've got a different word for that. So whatever. He goes all the way down the thing, and then he's like, well, think about your Christian witness, because somebody might not know that it's your first drink or your fourth, you know, and they just happen to see you drinking. And, and he goes through all these kinds of things, and he finally gets to his clincher argument, where he says, is it ever the best choice? That is such a manipulative argument. Is it ever the best choice? And I'm like, hello, Galatians chapter 5, verse 1, it's for freedom that Christ set you free. Is it ever the best choice? Yeah, absolutely it might be. Especially if the Bible says that wine gladdens the heart. If the Bible speaks about the new heavens and the earth and the new earth as being like milk and honey and wine flowing. Is it really the best choice to act like the more holy I am, the more miserable I am and I don't enjoy any of the things that God has created? That little argument stuck with me forever, all through college. Is it the best choice? And it made me live a life of fear because I never heard any teaching from this guy about Christian freedom. Even though the Bible says it's for freedom that you've been set free, all I heard was his voice in the back of my head all the time saying, are you sure you can do that? Are you really sure? That's not what Jesus came to bring is a bunch of people myopically worried about whether every little thing they were doing was making God upset with them. 
It's not what the doctrine of adoption is about. It's not what the doctrine of justification is supposed to be about. Now, we can talk about alcohol and the proper use of it. That's not my point tonight. My point is, I feel like there's a lot of people I know that have that little voice in the back of their head all the time. And they don't ever think about this verse. They don't ever think about this verse. They're not thinking in terms of how today can I live out? It's for freedom that Christ set me free. How can I live that out in my own life? How can I live that out as I go out among my friends? How are people who know me and know that I'm a Christian going to understand that it's for freedom that Christ set me free by the way I'm living today? I think it's worth thinking about. You know, um, Calvin, John Calvin, Martin Luther, the Puritans, they wrote a lot about Christian freedom. Now, some of you might think that's strange. You might not think it's strange for Luther because we tend to think of him as kind of a wild guy. And he kind of was. But, but John Calvin, John Calvin and the Puritans, you don't really think about them as being overly concerned with freedom. And that's because they've been slandered in history. But I will tell you, they wrote a lot about Christian freedom. I don't hear many people talk about Christian freedom much today. I certainly don't hear many youth groups talk about Christian freedom. It's almost like, well, don't let those kids know about Christian freedom, you know, until they're old enough to, to not care, you know? And I'm like, but it's in the Bible. It's for freedom that Christ set us free, right? It was a big deal. So what is it? Well, let's dig into it. Now, in the context, and even in the context here, you, you should see it's connected to justification. And you see here, he talks about in verse 4, you who are trying to be justified by the law. How does he go from freedom to this whole thing about circumcision and being justified by the law? What's the connection? Is he just jumping around? No, he's not at all. Because the issue that Paul has been dealing with in this whole letter, those of you who haven't been here, let, let me just tell you this. Paul had come to the Galatians he didn't intend to go preach the gospel there. He was passing through. He got sick. He got waylaid there. And he ends up preaching the gospel. They get converted. And then Paul leaves and he goes on his way. Then some other teachers, we call them the Judaizers, some false teachers come in after Paul has left and they tell these brand new Christians, you know, Paul didn't really tell you everything. He told you how to start out in a relationship with Jesus, that you need to trust him and give your life to him, and he needs to change your heart and make you from dead to live. Yeah, that's good. He gets you started on the right foot. But what Paul neglected to tell you is you also need to be circumcised, and you also need to do all of these really over-the-top kinds of things that will show God that you really, really are sold out to him. And if you don't do that, well, we're not really sure that God loves you very much. You need to show God how much you really care. Does this sound familiar? Maybe you've heard sermons like that. I can name lots of books that, I, that sell, very popular books that sell, that basically say that kind of stuff. It's one thing to be a Christian, but are you really sold out for Jesus so that God really will smile at you? And Paul says, that's a lie from the pit of hell. It's not even a gospel. It sounds like a gospel. It sounds spiritual, but it's not even the gospel. He says this in chapter 1. And as he goes on, he says, look, it's about being justified. How are you justified? What does that word even mean? Some, maybe some of you have heard it described as just as if I never sinned. Anybody ever heard that? Just, I won't ask for hands because that's wrong. So I don't want, I don't want you to raise your hand and then I'll be like, ah, I got you. I'm not going to do that. 
That's only half of what justified means. Justified means that you're beautiful in God's sight because you've done everything he requires from the heart. That's what it means to be justified. It doesn't mean that you're treated as somebody who never sinned, but now it's up to you to show God how much you love him. It means that you're treated as one who loved him from your soul, with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, from the moment you're born to the moment you die. That's how God sees you if you're justified. Why? Because Jesus lived and died in your place. And what Paul is saying is, you either take all of that or none of that. You don't take Jesus living and dying in your place and then add to it circumcision to kind of cover your bets or to make you more beautiful. Because if you try to make yourself more beautiful than Jesus' righteousness, you actually are denouncing the righteousness of Jesus. You're not really trusting in the righteousness of Jesus at all if you're not trusting it for all. That's what he says. And you've fallen away. He doesn't mean here you've lost your salvation when he says you're fallen from grace. What he means is you've fallen away from the basis upon which you relate to God. Later in this chapter, he's going to say, yeah, you're biting and devouring one another because you're all myopic and introspective and you're worried about what God thinks about you and what other people think about you. But freedom, knowing that God's grace has given the righteousness of Jesus to you, and now you're beautiful in his sight, not because of anything that you've done, sets you free. It sets you free. That's what Paul says. The false teachers are telling the Galatians, you need to be circumcised, not as a sign of God's promised grace. That's why it was given to Abraham. See, here's the tragedy. That circumcision was given to Abraham as a sign that you believe in God's promise that one day he was going to make you clean in his sight. And instead, what had happened is the Jews had lost sight of that, and they turned it into the thing that made them better than other people. It's easy to do that sometimes. The gifts of God sometimes become the basis for us feeling superior to other people. It happens. And that's what had happened. And now these false teachers are coming in and telling people who were Gentiles, who never would have been circumcised, hey, you need to be circumcised. The problem is circumcision was pointing to the coming of Jesus. Now Jesus had already come, you're not, you don't need the sign that's pointing anymore. That would be like, you know, on your, if you're you know, moving into Belmont and you get, you know, like to Lebanon, maybe east of here, you're like 40 miles away, it says Nashville, 40 miles, and you just pull over and you're like, here we are. Like you're just stopping at the sign and you're camping out there. That's not what signs are for. Signs say, keep going. So the sign of circumcision is saying, keep going. Because what's going to happen in Jesus is circumcision is going to become baptism. This is Colossians 2, if you want to read it. Circumcision is going to be kind of baptism, where God's cleansing is going to go to all people, men and women. Well, that's another topic. What is Christian freedom. It's about justification, and it's about quieting frightened consciences. Now, I don't know if you've ever read any of John Calvin. This is one of the, the best things that, that he says. In his chapter in the Christian Institutes, his chapter on Christian freedom, he has an entire chapter on Christian freedom that's well worth reading, and here's what he says. I love this definition. He says, Christian freedom is in all its parts 
a spiritual thing. Its whole force consists in quieting frightened consciences before God. Do you have a frightened conscience before God? He says, frightened consciences before God that are perhaps disturbed and troubled over, one, forgiveness of sins, or two, anxious whether unfinished works corrupted by the faults of our flesh are pleasing to God, or three, tormented about the use of things indifferent. Now, I'm going to talk about two of those three tonight, and we're going to talk about a third one another week. The first is troubled over forgiveness of sins. And Calvin says, Christian freedom, as Paul says here, is first and foremost about justification. How can I stand before God and look at him and know that he looks at me and smiles? Because Jesus lives and dies in the place of sinners. And when you put your trust in him, you're united to him by faith. The way that God looks at Jesus is the way he looks at you. You don't need to have a frightened conscience before God, troubled over forgiveness of sins, if you put your trust in Jesus. Because Jesus is the one who heard God say, well done, good and faithful servant. He's the one who heard, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. And if you are united to him by faith, that's his word over you tonight. This is my son. This is my daughter in whom I am well pleased pleased. But what about the second one? The second one, consciences that are troubled over unfinished works that are corrupted by the faults of the flesh. What is he talking about? He's talking about after you've become a Christian and you still sin. I've talked to lots of students over the years that would say, well, I can understand how God could forgive me for my sins before I knew better. But now that I'm a Christian, I really should have known better, and I just don't know how I can accept his forgiveness. And I say, well, number one, you aren't forgiven of your sins because you didn't know better. The only way you're forgiven of your sins is if Jesus lives and dies in your place. So number one, you're you're, you're a little confused about that. But number two, you're really confused about how God looks at Christians. Because again, God looks at Christians as he looks at Jesus. And and this is, again, the doctrine of adoption that Paul talked about in the last chapter. God looks at his children, not like slaves who have to give perfect obedience for him to continue to smile, but like children who he smiles at, not because their works are perfect, but because they're his kids. And that's so important to understand. What's your basic orientation? When you think of how God thinks of you, do you think that he thinks of you like a master and a slave or a father and children? Paul says, the Bible says, he looks at you as a father looks at his children. He doesn't expect you to get it perfect. He doesn't. Now, that seems kind of crazy sometimes. But that's the reality. And here's the thing. The only thing that melts your heart and changes the way you live is to see that. Now I'm going to jump down. I put a lot of good quotes on here. But I want you to, I want you to, to see this one. Oh, did I not put it on here? Okay, I'm just going to tell you what it is. <laughs> I had two versions of this outline, and I, I guess this one didn't make the final. But 
It's so important. Charles Spurgeon said this. Great Baptist preacher said, when I thought that God was a tyrant, I found it easy to sin. When I thought God was hard, I thought my sin a trifle. But when I understood him to be my loving and gracious father, I smote my breast that I had ever sinned against him. Does that resonate with you? Like that's the heart of the Christian life, and I fear not enough people understand it. I fear so many people feel like the best way to get me to live the kind of life I live is to pour guilt and shame on myself, because if I feel bad enough, maybe I'll finally shape up. But remember what I said about holiness? Holiness is about freedom and joy and peace. And that way of living, oh, it may change your external conduct, but it's actually making your heart more and more bitter toward God. And God is not impressed with your conduct. He wants your heart. Oh, he wants your heart to lead to conduct. What does he say? The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. And what does that look like? Well, it looks like the law. It looks like living the way he wants you to live. We'll talk about that next week. But he wants your heart. He doesn't just want grudging obedience driven by you trying to beat yourself up over the, all the time. That's not freedom. And it's for freedom that Christ set you free. It's really a paradigm shift. I, I remember a guy preaching a sermon once, one of the first times I ever went to REF over at Vanderbilt in my 20s, mid-20s, and a guy preached a sermon on Romans 2.4. You know what Romans 2.4 says? It says it's the kindness and mercy of God that's designed to lead to repentance. And I thought, well, that like turns everything upside down. Or you could look, there's a verse in Titus that's like this, that says, the grace of God teaches us to say no to ungodliness. But that's not the way we think of it, because most of the way you've got, you've been able to make yourself live differently is by fear and shame. And Christianity says that's not like Christianity is not coming along and say, yeah, I can work with that guilt and shame thing and I can, I can use that and I can make you live Christianly through guilt and shame. That's not Christian obedience. That's not freedom. It's not joy and peace. It's not the fruit of the Spirit. Are there certain kind of parameters? Yes, Jesus says, if you love me, what? Keep my commands, right? But the key is, how do you grow a heart of love? And I take you back to that Spurgeon quote. When I thought God was a tyrant, I found it easy to sin. And that's what Paul does here, right? He says, for through the Spirit, we eagerly await by faith the righteousness for which we hope. That's a pretty interesting verse. He says, eagerly await. Now, we already have the righteousness, the beauty given to us, but he's talking here about longing, eagerly awaiting when what is said about us will be true from the inside out. And, and, and here, there's actually like a really interesting, there's two things I want to point out that I think are, are keys to understanding how you actually get to be different. The first is, 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 is this one. Through the Spirit, we eagerly await by faith the righteousness for which we hope. That means that you're thinking about the righteousness and the beauty and you're eagerly awaiting it. Now, hope in the Bible, this is another one of those words that's very different in the Bible than it is in the culture. Hope in the Bible means confidence. It's a done deal. 
Hope is not wishful thinking. It's not ever in the Bible. Hope in the Bible means this is solid, write it down, cash the check, it's secure. That's the kind of hope that animates. So what he's saying is, we know there is a day coming when the beauty that God sees, I'll see. And so will everyone around me. That day is coming. And I want to think about it. I want to dwell upon it. I want to taste it as I'm eagerly anticipating it, as I'm dreaming about it. Do you dream about your future? That's, this is what Paul's saying. <coughs> dream about this future if you're a Christian, because this is solid and secure. So what he says now, you need to be eagerly anticipating this beauty. That means you need to think about it. You need to connect the dots. You need to enjoy it even by anticipation as you think about what's coming for you. And there are lots of places in the Bible where it says this. There's a great place in 1 Peter where it says that um, we have a righteousness kept in heaven for us where it can't perish, spoil, or fade. You have a beauty that's kept in heaven because it's the beauty of Christ, and you can't get at it to screw it up. You can't. Jesus is the basis upon which God decides what he thinks about you. And there's nothing you can do to make Jesus less beautiful. Well, there's lots of things you can do to make yourself less beautiful, but you need to be thinking and eagerly awaiting when the beauty of Jesus will be seen on you. Actually, Paul talks about this in Romans 8 as the glorious liberty, the glorious freedom of the children of God. And he says, actually, the whole creation is groaning for that glorious liberty, that glorious freedom of the children of God that one day, when all things are made right, we will experience. And that's what should fill our hearts, right? And there's one other thing I want to point out before we close. It's back in verse 5. This little word again. Now, Paul is talking to people who had come out of paganism. They hadn't come out of Judaism. They were very far away from understanding anything about who God was and what he was like and what it was like to live in a relationship with him. They didn't know anything about that. So Paul would say you were in this yoke of slavery. You're worshiping things. Whatever you're worshiping ends up controlling you if it's not the thing that is so solid and based on grace that it sets you free. And so Paul says here, don't be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. And what's interesting is, what he's saying is legalistic religion and pagan immorality are really two sides of the same coin. They're two sides of the same coin. They're both about slavery. And why are they slavery? Because they're two ways of avoiding Jesus. There are two ways of avoiding Jesus. You can avoid Jesus by saying, I don't need anybody to tell me how to live. But of course, if you're living that way, I love G.K. Chesterton who said, when we break the big laws, we don't get freedom. We get the little laws. In other words, if you rebel against the way God made you to live, you don't get freedom you get all kinds of petty authoritarianisms and all kinds of bondage in your life. 
If you say, I wasn't made to glorify God, if you think that I'm made to be the best version of me that I can be, well, what happens when you let yourself down? How can you forgive yourself? Right? When you rebel against what you were made for, real freedom is not doing whatever you want. It's being who you were made to be. That's what Christ offers. And when you turn away from that, your life becomes filled with all kinds of petty authoritarianisms, all kinds of bondage. A lot of people in our day and age say, you can't talk to people about sin anymore because people don't like the idea of sin. Now they like the idea of freedom. Okay, listen, you want freedom, but you can't have it unless you can become who you were made to be. You know, it'd be like if you were out, you know, out at Percy Priest and you were fishing and all of a sudden a fish jumped up on the bank and started proclaiming, I'm free, I'm free. It's going to die, right? <laughs> because fish aren't made to live outside the water, right? And that's the, that's the upside down nature of what the Bible says about freedom. It's not saying, hey, I'm finally free of my environment, finally free of the water. I can do whatever I want. No, you're most free when you're who you were made to be. And one of my favorite verses, I'll close with this, is Isaiah 54, 5. Write this down, Isaiah 54, 5. Go look this up later. God says, your maker is your husband. Actually, I think he says the other way. Your husband is your maker. Your husband is your maker. Do you understand that the whole of Christianity is in that verse? Because what it says, the one who made you and says, this is what I made you for. This is how you're to live. He's the one who marries himself to you. And, and I think we tend to fall off on one side or the other. We think, well, God married himself to me. He doesn't really care how I live. Really? Man, I hope you're never in a relationship with somebody that doesn't care how you live. Because one thing I know is that you won't be loved. People that love you care about how you live. But a lot of people think, well, no, he's my husband. He just loves me no matter what. Or they think, well, he's our maker. He told us how we're to live. We need to try our best to try and live that way. Christianity is about your maker is your husband. The one who loves you, married himself to you, says, this is what I made you for. And this is why James says that the law of God is the perfect law of freedom. And actually what Paul's saying here, the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. That's the heart of the law. That's the heart of the law. Faith expressing itself through love. But more on that next week. Let me pray for us.